Well, welcome to another episode of Tyrannus Hall, where we're trying to create a grace-filled space where we can talk about the missional mandate of the Canadian Reformed Churches. And we do that through interviewing various people. And today we have two guests that we're interviewing, and they both work for an organization called Servants Anonymous. Our guests are Abby and Theo. And rather than uh, us give them an introduction, Bill, why don't uh, I just allow them to do that? So maybe, Abby, you could start. Could you tell us briefly what what Servants Anonymous is, and then tell us why it is that while you're speaking and while Theo speaks, we don't see your faces. Yeah, for sure. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. So Servants Anonymous Foundation is an organization that exists to provide long-term recovery and skill development programs for women and their children coming out of human trafficking. Um, so this is a crucial thing in our day and age where human trafficking is uh, a hot topic and lots of people are hearing about human trafficking and the rescue of individuals. But our organization actually focuses on the restoration of these women after they've experienced this incredible injustice. I'll let Theo explain a little bit more about the organization and why you can't see us. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the SA Foundation has been around for actually over 30 years, providing long-term housing, recovery, job training, and reintegration for women and their children escaping human trafficking and exploitation. The SA Foundation has provided training and resources to plant programs in seven countries and 12 major cities across the globe. So we're also an international organization. The SA Foundation's World Services Division, also called, called SAWS, is located in Vancouver, where we run our local program, which, which is Genesis Vancouver, and where we also provide international training and where we have our Global Wonders Products of Hope and our Greater Vancouver Advocacy Center here in Surrey, where, where I am presently. And then we also run Advocacy Center in, in Calgary. And yeah, about, the, about why you can't uh, see us for this interview, let me explain that. We have what's called the principle of anonymity. So hence, you know, ser Servants Anonymous. Uh, so we're the SA Foundation. Our website is safoundation.com. And SA stands for Servants Anonymous. And why anonymous? Well, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. And we believe that an important way to do this, and this is a bit countercultural, a bit countercultural, which is how it often is in the kingdom of God, right? Our policy is to maintain anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. And that would include a podcast like this. We could probably fill a whole hour talking about this principle, but there are really four main reasons why we have this principle of anonymity. One is to protect the dignity of all the sexually exploited women and children we serve. So we, we take their protection and their welfare as a very, very high priority. And anonymity, helps them break away from their old lifestyle and to begin a new life without fearing publicity surrounding their past. 
So we want to protect them. We want to protect the women. We want to protect the children. Another reason is we don't want to re-exploit any woman or child by selling or um, otherwise publicizing their personal painful pasts. This would be destructive to their recovery, as you could well understand, and their well-being. With their permission, we do share parts of their stories, but we're very careful about how we do that. So we will share parts of their stories to educate others about sexual exploitation and about the work that we do, but only in a way that protects their human dignity as image, as image bearers of God. There's a third reason. We encourage the women we serve not to partake in sharing their personal stories through media because we have found this to be hazardous to, to their recovery. And, you know, I could, I could share stories about that, but... But yeah, there have been situations where where women have uh, shared their stories and it has actually, you know, initially they were told this will be good for you, it'll be good for others, but they discovered later that it it actually was, was very harmful to them. And the fourth reason is that we're determined as SA leaders and staff to avoid the temptation to fulfill our own personal desires for recognition, ego inflation or control. So that, that principle of anonymity is not just for the women and children in our care, it's also for us as staff. Because there's a real temptation when we're doing this work to put ourselves on a pedestal, say, look, look what the wonderful things that we're doing and, and to put ourselves forward as the heroes. And we absolutely don't want to do that. We believe that is against, against the gospel. It's against, you know, being servants, being servants of the Lord in the kingdom of God. And um, so we want to avoid that. So in summary, our, our principle of anonymity provides for the dignity, protection, and care of program participants, essay leaders, and staff. And then as an application of this principle, essay leaders and staff must refrain from showing their faces or revealing their last names when appearing publicly on media and also in a, in a situation like this. All right. So that explains well why we can't see your faces and we're just calling you Theo and Abby and we're not using your last names today. <laughs> Abby, can you tell us a little bit about, give us a picture of, of human trafficking in Canada? Because it seems to me that in our churches, for instance, people are concerned about various things that go on in our society, but human trafficking doesn't seem to be talked about that much and you know give us a give us a bit of a picture of what that looks like uh, in canada or what that looks like in perhaps in cities that some of our listeners are are, uh, are living in you know who are, who are on listening to this podcast at the moment yeah for sure i think it's important to note that you know we're all coming into this conversation at different levels like some listeners may have heard a lot about human trafficking and some this might be the first time that they're hearing about it in canada we often think about it as a global issue you know in developing nations rather than in our own communities and backyards and so i think just explaining what human trafficking is is a good place to start and so it's defined in three principles there's the act the means and the purpose and so the act of human trafficking is actually recruiting harboring controlling the movement transporting an individual by the means is the second part of it. And the means is through fraud or deception, coercion, grooming, lies, threats, physical violence. This is how they actually control this individual that they've taken captive. And the purpose of human trafficking is always for the means of exploitation. 
And exploitation means generating a profit off an individual. And so when we look at the term of human trafficking, it's so dehumanizing. It's actually saying that a person can be bought or sold as a commodity for another person's gain or greed. And so I just want to paint that picture first, just mm. to give listeners an understanding of what it is. And within Canada, there's, we're not immune to this, unfortunately. There are traffickers and pimps that are preying on the vulnerabilities of many different communities for this reason, for exploiting them for the purposes of profit. Now, in Canada, the main forms of trafficking that have been identified by the police is sex trafficking. So actually exploiting an individual sexually for gain, profit. And yeah, the majority of the cases reported by police are female, female women uh, and children that are exposed to this kind of exploitation. And Ontario is a very prevalent state for reporting this type of crime, but it is in every single uh, province, unfortunately. And so, yeah, just to understand a little bit of the picture of who gets trafficked, excuse me, there are different vulnerabilities. And these can um, stem from economic background to substance abuse, to unstable homes, to child abuse. There's lots of risk factors, but I want everybody to understand that it can happen. Every socioeconomic background, every race, every culture it's exposed to. There are just certain uh, populations that are more vulnerable because of these different risk factors. And we do see in First Nations communities an overrepresentation in Canada. So 50% of trafficking cases in Canada actually involve a woman with First Nations status. And First Nations women actually only make up 4% of the population of Canada. And so that's an incredible overrepresentation due to, like I've mentioned, many of the risk factors and including residential um, school heritage issues, that historical issue of abuse and the breakdown of families and that instability. And so how does somebody get trafficked? Well, unfortunately, these traffickers, they are preying on them in terms of these vulnerabilities. So they're, they're out looking for this type of individual. It may be at a school, it may be at a mall, It may be within a local community where they know that there are certain vulnerabilities and populations at risk. But ultimately, the main form of grooming or the fraud that happens that we typically see within Canada and within the women that we serve is what we call the Romeo type pimp, where there's an intimate relationship that happens between the the female and the trafficker where she's actually led to believe that she's loved by this individual. And what an abuse that is. What a, what a manipulation and a control strategy that is uh, to prey on this, this individual, to tell her that she's loved, to lavish her with gifts, to groom her into thinking that she's worthy of this attention, only to then switch that and, and, and then control her through a means of saying you now owe me now this favor that you've earned with me has to be earned back and this is how you can do it and so there's such a high level of manipulation that we don't understand that she actually sometimes doesn't even believe 
that she's being exploited. She doesn't even know that she's being trafficked. And so that leads to some of the hiddenness of it as well, this crime, where she doesn't understand that she's being exploited in this way because she truly believes that this individual cares for her. And so, yeah, that happens within gangs, that happens within hotels, different different locations that she's then bought and sold as a commodity. And I suppose I suppose this is why people sometimes use the term slavery, correct? Because the position, the person, the victim here feels indebted, perhaps, or is made to feel indebted to another. And then one is easily trapped, right? How, how does one begin to repay a debt of this sort? You know, I don't know what things are like in, in BC, but, but in Ontario, we're under a lockdown now, not a whole lot of movement. Shopping malls are closed. Does that mean that there's no grooming going on in in the province or are there other ways in which you know girls especially are victimized in this respect yeah well definitely there's a a big push to online and so again that that's difficult to identify but we know that it's happening that that's a big form of grooming that traffickers will use is actually online platforms and yeah, the vulnerability because you don't always know as a parent what's happening. And so luring these individuals away from support networks, isolating them, trying to draw them again romantically to 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 meet with them. And uh, and that's one way that they can they can groom them, or even through the use of, of getting them to take photos or video footage and again sharing that with them. There's another way. And I suppose this is why everyone is vulnerable as well, right? If you have a computer and a camera and some privacy, you could be targeted. And it doesn't matter what kind of social status you might have or ethnicity or background, you you could be targeted. Exactly. Yeah. You talked about how the ministry that you're involved in is is mainly about restoration and not rescue per se. I think I think we want to get to the point where we talk about how the, the church can be supportive, but perhaps perhaps you Theo could share what restoration means. What 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 is involved in that process? And do you are you not involved with rescue at all? Or are these individuals who are brought to SA and then you begin the process of restoration? Well, I think I, I, I wouldn't say that rescue isn't isn't a part of it at all. I think, in fact, that that would be, I guess, in a way, you know, the beginning of what we do. So when when we when we actually take a woman into our program, we are we are rescuing them in a sense. But we don't we don't as an organization we don't do rescue and. That, that may, I think part of the reason for that is just our, our, our social context, at least here in Canada, here in Vancouver. There are many frontline organizations that are, that are helping the, these vulnerable women. So the women are entering treatment centers or hospitals or are in contact with, with other social agencies because they want help. They want out. And we have found that we, we can only really help women who want to be helped, to, to actually go out onto the street and try to, you know, take, take a woman off the street in Vancouver 
could actually be very dangerous for that woman. So we, 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 we have to be very careful about trying to do something that we're not equipped or resourced to do. So what we do is we, we, we take the opportunities that God has given us to be there for the women when they are ready to be helped, when they are reaching out, when, when they're open to be helped. So we, ha- we connect with many different, as many organizations as we can in Vancouver and in the surrounding area and uh, get our name out there. And we, we, we tell these agencies, we tell the hospitals, we tell the police, we tell anyone who comes in contact with these women, we're here. We, we, we have a program. We have a long-term recovery program for these women and their children. And uh, let us know if you, if you come in contact with a woman who, who, who would benefit from, our, from, our, from the work that we're doing. And then, yeah, so, so we, we focus mostly on long-term recovery. So when I say long-term recovery, we're talking three to seven years. And in some cases, I mean, we don't even want to put an end date on it, really, because often our relationships with these women extend for much longer like the, the staff that has been with our organization since its beginning they 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 talk about relationships that they still have with women from the very beginning of the organization which is really a beautiful thing so so but but the reality is that sexual exploitation and human trafficking is so traumatizing that uh, a, a long-term recovery program is needed for them the the trauma that these women experience is is similar to the trauma to the degree of trauma of a frontline soldier so when these women come out of sexual exploitation they've been very severely traumatized and it literally takes years for them to recover it takes it takes a lot of patience and time and endurance and and especially it takes community they need to be surrounded by a loving, caring, and we would argue a gospel Christian community where, where, they can, where they can experience true, deep healing and recovery. And, well, that, that, uh, that's, a, that's a good segue then into talking a little bit about, you know, what does this mean for individual churches and individual Christians that might be li- listening to this podcast. So when you say, yeah. you know, on the one hand, what people really need is a community, a gospel community, we could, we could go that road. Maybe before we get there, I'm wondering, I, I know that you guys are dealing with a sort of downstream, you're dealing with people that have uh, been trafficked and are seeking to get out. Can one of you say a couple of words about, about prevention? Like what kind of, what can we, we, we be doing in our churches to prevent young women also within our congregations from experiencing this. And that's not a hypothetical question. I know personally of two individuals in who raised in covenant homes, raised in Christian homes, who have been very specifically groomed and happily both of them, you know, were, were saved from that before anything more happened. But this is going on also in our churches. So, you know, what can we do when we think about prevention? And then maybe after that, we can talk about, you know, farther down the road. Yeah, well, I think I think here too, community is so important. Like just being the gospel community that we need to be for our for our own daughters, loving them as God loves them, being involved in their lives, showing interest in them, making sure that when we see signs of of distress or sadness or depression or anxiety or bullying or whatever, that we we don't 
that we don't dismiss those things or ignore those things, but that we we're, we're alert and attentive to those things, that we're, we're the eyes, eyes and ears of Jesus within our own church communities and, and our own families, and, and, and that we are that to vulnerable children and other families where perhaps there's dysfunction, where maybe the father isn't present, or maybe he's present, but he's not a loving father, or it's not it's not always uh, fathers. Sometimes it's, it's mothers. Sometimes there's a, a bad relationship between a mother, a mother and her daughter that leads to vulnerability. We've heard and seen uh, much of that too in the women who have come through our program. So, so just being that loving gospel community to each other is, is, is so important. Yeah, you have anything to add to that, Abby? Well, I was just going to say education as well. Like, again, we talk about you know, we want to be the primary teachers of our children and of our community, right? We don't want culture to dictate what they know. There's a prevailing, you know, message of over-sexualizing children. Like, you know, there's an yeah. overarching message that, you know, to be of value, you must have a relationship in this manner. And so I think it's really important that the churches are discussing these topics of sexuality and of understanding identity and worth and value from a really early age and not shying away from the difficult topics. That, that's such good advice, especially for, for a generation that, you know, I, I didn't get taught very explicitly about sexual matters from my parents. You know, sort of at one point in time, I got given a book, I think. But, you know, I, I read something the other day where someone said, you know, if if your only reaction to your daughter when she talks about boyfriends is like, oh, when they come around, I'm going to bring out the shotgun. Or <laughs> or if your daughter can't ask you to pick up feminine hygiene products because dad doesn't talk about that kind of stuff, then how in the world are you ever going to have real conversations about, you know, what, what you know, somebody who's who's grooming them online or or how are you going to have, you know, conversations about those those real, very real life and death matters when it comes to human trafficking. So, yeah, yeah. We, you know, when we talk about cultivating this gospel community, it takes a bit of courage on the behalf of parents who perhaps don't have a model to follow to say, I'm going to do something different here. I don't know, you know, Bill, Bill, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, it just, it just strikes me that all of this underscores something that the Bible teaches, and that is that sexual intimacy is very, very powerful. And of course, it's meant to be powerful in terms of forging relationships, but when it's misused, people get hurt, and they get hurt tremendously. And as a pastor, and you, you, may, you may have this as well, Winston, I would say that most of the pain that I encounter in parishioners today is the result of sexual abuse of some kind. And so you just wonder when the society, and I'm including the church here, is going to wake up to this idea that God gave uh, sexual intimacy to be pursued and enjoyed in particular parameters where people are protected. And so I think there's a wider message that we need to preach here about sexual intimacy, namely about its power. So I think one of the things that the Bible teaches is that there's no such thing as casual 
sex. And I think that's uh, that's something that's supported by the, the you know the Me Too generation and and so forth that people are getting hurt and they're getting hurt tremendously because of misused sexual um, yeah. abuse. I think those are really great points, Bill. And yeah, I, I think I think that that really resonates uh, with us as a program too, as a foundation. We we you know statistically. I think we somewhere on our website we say 99% of the of the women that we serve have been abused sexually. So there's been child abuse, there's been sexual abuse, there's been physical abuse, emotional abuse, or a combination of those. And in fact, we would probably wager that that is the case in almost every every woman that has come through our program and that is in our program. And so. I think the point that you make, Bill, about about the the prevalence of of of, of sexual abuse, as you see that in in the ministry and and in in the church, I think that you know that, that's something that we have to come to terms with. And Abby and I were just talking about this the other day as well, as we were preparing for this interview. And Abby made a very good point that you know often often you know we we either glamorize sexuality or we demonize it. And, and what we have to do is we have to have a good biblical gospel sexual ethic. And I think that's a big challenge that, that we face as church to, you know, as gospel ministers present the gospel, proclaim the gospel, pro- proclaim the sexual ethic of the gospel in, in a way that, that, that connects with our generation and that we're not afraid to to grapple with those very hard questions and 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 on top of that that we're not afraid to deal with the dysfunction that is actually there that we have the courage to say yes this is a problem and then when there are those cases in in our churches and uh, you know in the lives of those in our pastoral care that we say that we're that that we're yeah what's the best way to to describe it that we're open about it that we don't hide it that we have the courage to face those things to call out sexual sin to call out you know how we how we talk even or you know how we talk about sex how we talk about genders what what we watch the 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 activities that that we that we participate in and and yeah so so it's yes yeah, and, and, if, and, and if I could add to that, to bring to bring to bear on the subject all the wealth of Scripture, like isn't it so striking when you look at the genealogy of Jesus that we have Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, mm-hmm. you know, as the the ancestors of our Lord and Savior, people that you know were sexually exploited. Yeah. You know, if you think of the, the the huge wealth of Scripture in terms of you know caring for the marginalized and caring for those who are abused, or the laws set up so that kind of things wouldn't happen, and to yeah to speak openly also just plainly on the basis of what Scripture teaches us, and to be teaching that whole counsel of God, and that's where I think a ministry like your own and the reason that we have you on the podcast is so directly related to the overall mission of the church. Yeah, we want to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then it also has to include proclaiming that gospel to the people that are undergoing terrible amounts of hardship, or you know, or are perhaps at a point in their life where they feel that they have no hope. 
So can you, can one of you explain to us a little bit about, you know, how do you offer that hope to someone who comes into your program when you have a, you know, have a lady that contacts you, a woman that contacts you sort of what, you know, are there some steps that you run, run them through? You won't be able to explain that, you know, you know, you know, in all of its fine detail, but can you give us sort of an outline of what that looks like? Yeah. Well, I think, I think probably the best way to summarize it is that what we try to do as, as an organization, as a ministry, whatever you want to call us, a program, is we want, to be, we want to be a gospel community for the women. We want to be a safe place for the women and their children. We want to, we want to show the love of God, the love of Christ uh, to them. And the best way we believe for us to do that is, is to simply help them, help them recover, to, get, to, to provide that safe place where they, can, where they can find healing and to provide them with the tools that they need to, you know, to, to recover from the trauma that they've experienced. So when you, when you talk about in terms of the the tools that they need, for instance. Yeah, Abby, can you give us an ex- some examples of what kind of tools tools these women need? What kind of things they need in order to to recover within the context of that that community that you're support- giving them? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think our program model is holistic in that way. It encompasses everything that she's going to need. So it starts with refuge. Our program model is five hours. It starts with refuge because she needs a safe place to be, and so she comes into this community that maybe she's never experienced before of stability, safety, and love. But the next R is restore. So the the primary R we're talking about right now, where actually there are day classes for each of the women where we provide tailored curriculum to each woman that focuses on the 12-step recovery program. So we do walk her through the 12 steps and understanding that she has a spiritual element to this journey and introduce her to a higher power. We do devotions in the morning, so to ground each of the women in truth from the beginning, and they get to participate in that. We don't ever force a woman to to accept everything we believe, of course. Like, it's a, a program for every woman from every background of every race and religion. But we want to present to her what we know to be truth and love. And so she gets that opportunity to join in in those classes. We do parenting classes. We do anger management classes. We do choices, boundaries. So there's all this incredible curriculum material that we use to walk her through that journey of healing. Um, are, are, are we are we still at restore at this point? Or are oh, we, we going to another R? <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, reintegrate is the next R where we work on skill development so she can focus on a tool she's going to need to reintegrate into society. Because obviously we know that freedom is more than just escaping harm. She now needs economic security too to maintain freedom, as we all do. Then there's rewritten, a life rewritten, is where she actually would go back into community, but with support. We, again, as Theo said, the emphasis is always on community. So we have a follow care program where we work with the women in the community to help her pursue her goals of education or career whatever her her desire is at that point and be a mentor to her at that stage and then replicate is our final r where she's not only replicating everything she's learned into her child's life which is breaking those generational 
cycles of enslavement that we've talked about, but also we as an organization replicate the program model internationally. And so global leaders can come to us and gain the training that they need to provide this material and this curriculum, this transformation program for women in their own cities. I think we want to make sure we get to this question before our time's up, but (laughs) how can we as pastors and we as churches play a role in this ministry? Just think in terms of SA in particular, what would you like to see churches do? How can churches help? Yeah, well, I think number one would be please pray for us. Yeah, you know, this is difficult work. We're dealing with a lot of a lot of darkness. We're 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 battling against the the strongholds of the devil, and so we need your prayers. Uh, we need your prayers for the women and their children for for healing, the healing that only God can can give, that only He can provide, and also for the staff that we would that we would be able to, yeah, that we would be able to have the, have the courage and the strength and the resources that we need to, to provide the care and the restoration and the, the, the friendship that these women and children need. So, yeah, please pray for us. Also, there's nothing that delights us more than being invited to do, to do a presentation at your church. We'd love to share with you what we're doing. We'd love to share. And so we love an opportunity like this because, you know, yeah, anyone we can tell about the work that, that we're doing, anyone that shows interest in the work that we're doing, that, that is so encouraging for us just to be able to share what we're doing, to tell others what we're doing, to know that people are interested in what we're doing and want to w- want to support us. Another way is obviously support us financially. You know, you can visit our, our website, safoundation.com and, and donate. You know, this, this, yeah, this work is, is, you know, we, we provide, we provide long-term recovery. We provide, we provide homes, we, we provide programming and, and, and so on. And we're also doing international training. So as you can understand, that requires a lot of uh, a lot of human resources. That require, requires real estate. We you know we have to have homes for the women to live in, and in most cities, homes are not cheap. So yeah, we need we need those we need those financial resources. And, and also yeah, we would just really like to encourage people to visit our website. We have a wealth of information on our website. There's there's lots there. We would encourage people to to visit our website, safoundation.com, learn, learn about sexual exploitation and human trafficking, learn about the work that we're doing and where we're working. And, and then also, you know, there, even in some of your communities in Ontario, interest has been expressed in starting an essay-like program. And that, you know, that sort of interest also delights us. And, and the thing is, we have the resources to train people to start programs in their own cities. So if there's any interest, any even just a small seed or just a small spark of interest in starting a program in your city, reach out to us. Let us know and we'll we'll get the ball rolling. We we have we have lots of material and resources available and, and we'd love that opportunity. 
Yeah. So for all of our listeners, then, if if that's piqued your interest and you're you would like to talk to one of our guests today, you know, reach out to them through safoundation.com and uh, and get in contact with them. Let me ask one last question before we finish off here. I'll ask you this one, Abby. There's a lot of darkness in the world, and you guys deal, like Theo said, with a, with a lot of difficulty and in and darkness in people's lives. What what's giving you hope? Where do you see hope in the middle of all of this? Great question. Thank you. We see hope every day because we get to witness the transformation in the lives of the women and children. And so that's why we can sustain doing this work is because we know that God is that work and nothing's too big for him. And so we're so grateful that we get to see this transformation journey. It's a privilege to walk alongside the women and children. And so, yeah, we see it as a privilege and so that that continually gives us hope when we have stories to share. And we have we have stories all the time coming from our global programs. We have one even just recently come in from Nepal about a woman who graduated from the program and is now in her own community, but identified two victims of human trafficking herself and was able to bring them to the program. And so that's the evidence of God's grace, right, that she's healed that she's free and so now she gets the opportunity to set others free and that's our hope oh that that's beautiful thanks for sharing that with us and i hope that that the listeners on this podcast will some of them at least will hopefully link arms with you guys as as you testify to the hope of jesus in your own hearts by giving hope to others thank you so much for being on the podcast today theo and abby thank Thank you. you let's talk about what we just heard from theo and abby I found very interesting Theo's comment that when it comes to sexuality, often that is sexuality is either glamorized or demonized also in the church. I'm wondering if you could chat a little bit about that and how we chart a path that, uh, that doesn't fall into one of those extremes and avoids all the dangers therein. Like you, Winston, I thought that was a profound point and, you can often see this in churches, and maybe our churches are guilty of this as well, a kind of fixation on sexuality. So while on the one hand, we're charging our society with being over-sexualized, we can be guilty by fixating on it ourselves. And that can be, you know, by preaching endless sermons exposing sexual sins or, you know, celebrating sexuality in a way that also represents a kind of fixation. So I think we need to be careful because sexuality is a gift and it's part of our human constitution, but it's only really a sliver of who we are. And if we exaggerate the sexual dimension to our lives, we're really misrepresenting humanity Jesus, of course, never married, so far as we know, never had a romantic relationship, and yet he was a totally fulfilled person. And I think just reflecting on the person of Jesus makes us rethink how we sometimes think about sexuality more generally. But, you know, the most important thing, I think, is just to cast a positive vision for sexuality with, with not, without um, exaggerating its significance for human beings. Does that make sense? Am I, am I making sense on this point? Yeah, I, I think it does. And I think that if we have a really good biblical view of sexuality, then that'll lead us 
or it'll it'll lead our hearts to be concerned about people that are being trafficked and want to be involved in things like the SA Foundation because we understand that what they what they have been through is a real really evil distortion of what sexuality is supposed to be according to God's design. No, I, I think that's I think that's that's important and it it plays out in all kinds of different ways, doesn't it? When we think about think about sexuality and especially when we think about girls, women, you know, since they're, you know, SA Foundation deals primarily with with women, although certainly his sex trafficking also does happen with boys, but you know, to a much smaller extent. But you think about the way that, you know, I've got a daughter who's, you know, a teenager, the way that you you raise your daughter, if you tell your daughter from you ever, she's a little girl and you only compliment her on her looks or on the way that she's dressed or the way that her hair is done, then, you know, that that girl develops into a woman that thinks that, well, all of my my identity is tied up in how I look, you know, which which is, you know, easily transformed, translated into, you know, my sexuality. That's where my my value all lies. And so we want to raise children in our families. We want to raise children in the church that have a, you know, a deep-seated identity as covenant children, as, a, as children of God the Father through, uh, through Jesus Christ. And that's where my identity lies. And then to have a healthy idea of what sexuality is that, that doesn't go the way of the world and glamorize it or just, you know, in, in real sinful fashions and never enters into sort of a real prudism, you know, that demonizes sexuality. But that, yeah, that that charts that in in biblical fashions, and I th- I think that that would be a good preventative for you know young women getting caught up by pimps and by by people who are grooming them in order to do terrible things. Yeah, I, I think we have a tremendous responsibility here, and it really falls on everyone in the church to kind of model maybe what we can call familial relationships where. You know, we men regard women as sisters in Christ, and and women regard men in the church as brothers in Christ. I noticed that the Apostle Paul recommends exactly this for Timothy, you know, to regard older women as mothers and younger women as sisters and all purity. We should have wonderful relationships among men and women in the church that are void of, you know, this kind of uh, sexual dynamic is the way I, I might put it, but very healthy, affirming, encouraging relationships with one another that approach the kind of relationships you would see in a healthy family among brothers and sisters and moms and dads and fathers and daughters and so forth. Yeah, I like that vision because it's not about you know, as a family or as a church community trying to be really, you know, or being really fearful and, you know, thinking that there's a, there's a pimp underneath every rock trying to steal our children or that, you know, there's, there's this great, you know, cabal of sex traffickers out there or something like that. But to take the dangers of the world that we live in seriously, but at the same time, just promote a really healthy biblical perspective on sexuality and do so in a way that allows our, our children to grow up safely. And maybe, maybe I can I can ask you this question, Bill. Does your church have any sort of safe church policy that that aims to try to protect people from sexual exploitation or from exploitation in general? We do have safe policies. I'm not sure how thorough they are, but I do know, for example, that anyone in our congregation who works with children needs to get a police check, vulnerable sector police check. And that's an element of our safe policy. I think we could probably do a lot more. 
And I know that there is an organization in the U.S. It's called GRACE, and it's an acronym for something. It was head up for many years by Boz Chavidjan. And it's apparently an excellent organization. I know they've put out a book uh, recently for churches on establishing safe policies. We can probably do better in this area. I suspect that our policy is kind of more of a minimalistic one, but we need to prioritize this. I mean, how about you and, and your church? Do you have something there that you're using? Yeah, we do. We have, we have a, a safe church policy. One of the things that's included in the policy is that all office bearers agree to get police checks. Yes, And that uh, not all of our office bearers are, are meeting with, you know, vulnerable people or something like that. But we try to do that as a, as a means of showing some leadership and saying, hey, we, we also take this seriously. And it enables us also to have, you know, when we say, when we have visitors come to the church to say, hey, you know, you know, this is how our nursery runs. This is how our leadership runs. This is what we're doing in order to try to make sure that this is a place where this particular heinous sin of exploitation, also of children, uh, we're trying to mitigate against that as much as we can. So, you know, that, that is also an attempt to have a, have a good witness to the world around us, as well as just making sure that children in our church, um, you know, are safe. Maybe we can leave it at that, Bill. You know, you know people listen to these podcasts. You can go on the, the SA Foundation website. I'd encourage uh, our listeners to think about how they might apply some of this stuff in their own personal lives. The SA Foundation, where it has uh, homes, if it has a home in your area, has got opportunities for volunteerism from, you know, in various different ways for different people in, in churches. There's other organizations in town that might be doing something similar. Think about whether or not there's room in your own life to be able to minister, love, show some, you know, some fruits of the gospel to people who are, you know, have been trafficked and who are living in very vulnerable circumstances. Thanks for, uh, for doing this again together, Bill. It's been good. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Winston. Have a great week. 